This evening we'll be having two readings. The first passage is Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 to Genesis 7, verse 10. And that can be found in page 8 in the Church Bibles. And then if you want to put a finger in page 1051, which is Luke chapter 17, and we'll be reading from verses 26 to 33. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Jem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature has, that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You're going to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come with you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. And then moving to Luke chapter 17, verses 26 to 33, and that's on page 1051. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came 
and destroyed them all. And it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Well, good evening. By way of introducing myself, my name is Blake Hansen. I'm a long-standing member of HT. Uh, my wife and I, we run a house group out west of the city in a place called Camborne. Our son Ruben is part of the littlest kids group called Sunbeams, which is a particularly cute name, I think. Uh, but when you're a parent, your perspective on cuteness seems heightened, uh, which is a tenuous segue into saying we're continuing our evening sermon series tonight, a series entitled Seeing Life from Odd Perspectives. A series which has thus far considered the serpent and the most fortunate sheep in the world. Tonight we focus in on Noah and a talk I am heading, is the flood half empty or half full? I'm a firm believer in knowing exactly where you are in a talk and so I'm going to lay out what we're going to consider tonight. First of all, we're going to consider two possible ways we might respond to this story. Then we're going to consider how Noah responds. And then we're going to ask the question, so what does this mean for our lives? Will you pray with me as we begin? Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you and useful for the building and encouraging of your people. Amen. Considering something from someone else's perspective is actually a very difficult thing to do. For me, at least, I always consider their perspective from my perspective. You could call it self-centeredness, but I can guarantee you we've all done it. And here's a trivial example. My wife absolutely loves trawling Instagram, looking at pictures of cute spaniel puppies. And sometimes she gets so excited and squeaks with delight and tells me that I must drop whatever it is that I'm doing and come and look at the cutest spaniel puppy that you have ever seen. It's a fickle title. It transfers on a nearly daily basis. But I'll look at the puppy, and I'll think for a while. And like anyone, you know, I love puppies. They're cute, yes. But I'm not seeing it. I'm not as excited as she is. And no matter how much I might try, it's worth owning. I don't have the same delight at looking at these pictures as she does. It's worth owning that when we adopt someone else's perspective, we do so with a large dose of our own thrown in. And it's with this in mind that I'd like to start with Noah, with our own perspective as we read ourselves into his story. And there are two possible ways that I'm going to suggest we might read this story. The first perspective, the flood half-empty perspective. All the tough-to-swallow aspects that are described in the story. And the second way is the flood half-full perspective all the ways the story augments our understanding of God. So what does the glass half empty look like? It starts with God telling you he's going to put an end to all people. Everyone you know and everyone you don't. Your neighbor, the milkman, your work colleagues, 
indeed your entire way of life. And I'm not sure how to swallow that, but there actually doesn't seem to be a lot of time because you're driven to the work at hand. Indeed, your life from that moment is to be lived in such a way that you already accept this fact and you're just now preparing for it by building a boat. We discover in Genesis chapter 9:20 that Noah was a man of the soil. So when God tells Noah to build an ark, he's asking Noah to do something that he's entirely unqualified for. And in quite a big way, because the scale of the ark was to build a boat that would require a minimum of three Olympic-sized swimming pools end on end simply to float it. Cranes hadn't been invented. Where do you get the cypress wood to build such a thing? How would you finance it? How do you come the logistic, overcome the logistical nightmare of stopping lions from eating impala and other predator-prey permutations? How do you source enough food for every inhabitant of the ark to last them for a year? And at what point in building this boat do you have time to take care of the domestic affairs of your own family, to care for their happiness? You're in the middle of the wilderness and the ark isn't exactly hidden. So A, I think your neighbors might be asking why you're building this. You're nuts, let alone a boat that's so big in a place that has no water. And secondly, when you explain why you're building it, they're almost definitely going to hate you and oppose you openly and create problems for you from that moment. During a spare moment, you might still, whilst you work on the boat, you're able to reflect, God is going to destroy all people. Doesn't that seem a bit much? The boat gets completed. The animals turn up, which must be a small relief. But our reading around verse 10 seems to imply that after they entered the ark, it was seven days until the floodwaters actually rose. So I wonder how that conversation goes. Day four or five, Noah, you fool. We're seriously in this stupid boat with tons of animals, but not a single drop of water in sight. What a waste. Let's get out of this thing. It seems everything is taken from Noah. His reputation, his relationships, his life. And then comes the, mor- the moment when the rains actually do come. One could imagine that from locations all around, people come and pound at the doors, crying out to be let in. And you can't. You turn your back on everything because God told you this is how it would be. And how lonely to be floating on that boat, the only survivors. The glass half empty, to mix my metaphors, is a tough pill to swallow. But this is our perspective on Noah, let's remember. We're not yet at Noah's perspective. But we arrive at the flood half full. And this starts even before Noah is introduced to us, where we learn that God's heart is troubled by evil. We read that in Genesis 6.6. Then we learn that God does not let evil go unpunished. Or put another way, he desires justice. And standing back, isn't that two wonderful things for God to be? Opposed to evil and desiring justice. In this flood story, we learn that it's possible to please God. In Genesis 6.8, just before our reading, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And from this, we discover a God who is involved in creation, interacting and speaking with Noah. We're told at the start of our reading that Noah walked faithfully with God. 
that relationship goes so far as to know God as someone who makes direct promises to his people. God says to Noah in chapter 6, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, which he then does from chapter 9. Isn't it amazing to see that God thinks of humanity as worth knowing? And beyond that, you're not only worth knowing, he wants to know you. Or we could put it more correctly, that he wants you to know him. And still, we learn more of God. One thing I find particularly comforting is that God is great at logistics. He created the world. He can arrange animals to show up in pairs. He can design a boat. He's got everything we might face covered. And not by halves, because as we see with the flood, God is all in. It more importantly shows us he's a God who is faithful to his own word, to fulfilling his promises. He's powerful to fulfill them. He's control of nature and history and now and what will come. We read in 7 verse 4, Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And then God fulfills it in verse 10. After seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. And still, we learn more of God. God knows the human heart. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. And knowing us so intimately as he does, it's further astounding to me that he chooses us like he chose Noah. He knows our hearts and he still wants us. We didn't have time to read it, but in the post-flood chapter 9, as the flood ended, as the punishment is complete, God immediately sends his blessing. In fact, it says, the Lord gave us everything. It's like the creation account all over again. Genesis 9 mirrors Genesis 1. God says, I give you everything. And there's a fresh slate, and into this fresh slate comes a new promise that never again will God wipe out humanity to destroy sin with a flood. However, all the human evil that will build up in the world again will still require a just punishment. We read God make this covenant with Noah in Genesis 9, chapter 11, uh, Genesis 9, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Which leaves us with the question, how does God deal with evil now? And we get a hint of an answer when we read verse 5 of chapter 9. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. Some sort of accounting for our lives is still required. And that account is explained fully in the Bible outside of the story. It's not found in a wooden boat. It's found on a wooden cross. It isn't found in the waters of a flood wiping out sin from the face of the earth. It's found in the torrents of blood poured out from Jesus as he was punished for our sin. It's not the death of many for the salvation of one. It's the death of one, of God himself, for the salvation of all who would turn to Jesus 
and believe in what he did for them. So troubled by evil was God, so deserving of punishment was our sin, so involved with humanity and concerned to bless us was God that he took on himself the just punishment and Jesus, his son, dying on the cross so that we could get to know him. Greater love has none than this, that they lay down his life for his friends. And if you have never responded to this all-encompassing, overwhelming love of God, I encourage you to say yes to Jesus. I trust you. Your life paid the price for mine. And we're edging closer now, I think, to Noah's perspective. Those are our dual perspectives, but we need to come back to Noah. We should consider Noah. It may be my imagination, but I expect there's something to Noah's perspective in the two things that we read in his passage already. And there is the challenge he faced with the evil of the world and its deserved punishment, and simultaneously, the encouragement of the greatness of God. And you might stand back and reflect and think, actually, that is the everyday reality of being a Christian, a troubled world that we live in, interposed by the goodness and the greatness of the God we know. Rick Warren once described the reality of life not as a series of peaks and troughs of good and bad following one and another, but as a series of train tracks, two parallel tracks where at any given time we experience both hardship and blessing. And I wouldn't want to be so sure as to say Noah's perspective was more half full than half empty, but there is something extra to consider with Noah. He was a man who walked with God. And the text gives us no indication that this changed after he learned of God's plan about the flood. Actually, there's this little refrain repeated twice, which is so telling about Noah, and I wonder if you spotted it hidden in our reading. It occurs verse, uh, in verse 22, and then again in verse 5 of chapter 7. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. No back chat, no grumbling. We get no insight that... God's request was difficult for Noah or not. Noah follows God. And we'd probably do well to say at this point that Noah's glass was also entirely full. And I'm going to leave the metaphor behind now as I think we could describe Noah's perspective far better than that. We could describe it as a sober assessment of the situation in which he chose God and determined to live his life in anticipation of the promise. I'm going to repeat that because if you remember nothing else from tonight, this is really it. Noah chose to believe God and live his life in anticipation of what was promised. He receives the word of God from God about the flood. He chooses to believe it. And then he sets his life on this course of following that promise, which is incredibly tough. If I honestly owned it, I would say that I would struggle to do this. I might get inconsistently close. I might start the ark. I might finish it. Probably not finish it. But it's tough to hold to God when you're waiting for the promise. Everyone else seems to be getting ahead. It's tough to build the ark or to be at church on Sunday, and everyone else is off doing what seems fun, eating and drinking. It's tough when the loudest triumph over the humblest it's tough when the promise of salvation from the God you trust also means condemning the world 
and many in it whom you love. It's tough when you start out following God's plan and it seems to make no sense where the results are thin and the encouragement is nowhere to be found. It's tough being in the waiting and that pause, the unknown, the questioning of whether God really did speak. It's tough when following God means turning the other cheek, serving others and lowering yourself, when it means leaving your old life behind. And the New Testament gives us a few ways to read the story of Noah, which I've taken as instruction in this. Uh, One of them was our reading spoken by Jesus from Luke 17. And he said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be just like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. And friends, where we consider Noah and how tough it must have been to live in anticipation of God's promise, we can gain at least two encouragements from how just Jesus describes his story. The first I would call out is that for all of the going about their own business that people do, how attractive it might seem, how desirable, well, the flood or mortality or the return of Jesus will catch people unaware and the end will be destruction but not so for those who are living in anticipation of God's promise. And the second thing, those living in anticipation of God's promise have therefore understood that the only way to save their lives is to lose it. Everything about Noah's life had to change long before the flood came. Building the ark, changing his daily diary schedule, nine o'clock, cut wood, 10 o'clock, cut wood. That was different to the way things were before how he used his resources, how he related to other people. He actually literally ended his life to go about the business of saving it, and he didn't look back. And a second instruction on Noah that the New Testament gives us comes in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, He condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And it's that holy fear on Noah's part that led him to lose his life in order to save it. To do everything as God commanded him. And by both accounts, it was 100% the right choice. So a recap moment, where are we? We've considered two ways that we might read Noah's story. We, may, we have said that Noah may well have experienced both of these things, but added to that was that Noah actually held those two ways in tension. He received the promise of God and then lived in anticipation of it, which was difficult, but he still somehow did all that God had commanded him. Which means we come to our final touch point of the evening. The one question remaining, so what? or with a little less attitude. 
What does living in anticipation of the promise of God look like for us? And firstly, one thing that's so obvious, but definitely worth saying, we do have to choose God. If you haven't done that, we can't be anywhere near living under his promise. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will keep it. And if you've never decided to follow God, to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, to let go of your life and, so to speak, hand the reins of them over to Jesus, well, this is the place to start. I'll give an opportunity to pray a simple prayer at the end of this talk, if that's something you want to do, to let go of your life and save it. And for anyone who has done this already, may this be a reminder that it's a continual thing. Each day when we wake, we must make a decision. Each decision that comes along in the micro and the macro, choose God. It's so easy to let our focus waver, to let go of God and to trust ourselves or be overwhelmed by the world or to have just our focus drift. But Noah reminds us, see God, see his goodness. Call yourself, as the psalmist does, to worship God in your inmost being. Hold on to the promises spoken in God's word. Read it. If we're not familiarizing ourselves with the words of Scripture to know what was promised, how can we live in anticipation of them? So number one, choose God. Number two, live for the least. And this may be a bit left field, but in the second time Jesus talks about Noah in Matthew 24, much like in Luke 17, he starts by talking about keeping alert, that we wouldn't be caught by surprise by the flood. But then in Matthew, his thoughts move to what it actually means for us to live this out, to watch for God's return. Who is living in anticipation of the promise? And he actually talks out the words of the parable of the sheep and the goats. And I can expand upon this no better than to read the words of Jesus. Matthew 25 from verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. No, I wasn't building the ark for himself only. Living in anticipation of God's promises to live for others, especially the least. We have a part in God's plan for their salvation as well. And the third thing, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. We read, Noah did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. A sacrifice has given up their life. 
Though a living sacrifice may take itself off the altar, we must keep placing ourselves back there. It's strong language, but illustrative. And I would recommend Romans 12 when all of us get home this evening, but it starts thus. I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then comes a great deal of practical advice on what it means to be a living sacrifice. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And the passage continues, but that's plenty to kick us off, is it not? A living sacrifice. And I think there certainly are more ways to live in anticipation of God's promise. Worship, witness to Jesus, seeking first his kingdom. You may have many more you can think of. But it does start with choosing God. And if you're someone who's never before decided to follow Jesus, then I shortly will pray a prayer. And should you want to make that commitment to lose your life and gain everything to gain Christ, then I invite you to pray it with me. And I also invite you to find me or anyone who's wearing a name tag afterwards, because we'd love to encourage you as you start on that journey. But I want to wind the various threads of this evening together, and I can think of no better way than in the words of the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. To choose God, to see the flood as half empty and half full, and to still cling to that promise and live as he commanded in anticipation of what's to come. And as I read this hymn, I pray you may be refreshed, encouraged, reminded of what you know is good, spurred to place your eyes on Jesus and let all else fall out of focus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. O'er us, sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. O turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. O and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let us pray. And if you'd like to welcome Christ into your life, I'll start and you could follow this prayer with me in your heart. Dear Father, I come to you seeing now the way I have been living has caused pain to your heart. Moreover, the way of my life has severed our relationship. But I know that you're not content for it to be that way and sent your son Jesus to die and take the punishment that my own wrongful doing deserved. 
I'm sorry. But I also turn to you now, believing and accepting that what Jesus achieved is for me. Thank you that you want relationship with me. And asking for your forgiveness, I also choose you, placing myself under the lordship and friendship of Christ, and ask for your help to live continually the rest of my days in communion with you and in anticipation of your promise of your coming kingdom. And for all of us, Lord, we pray for your Spirit's help to choose you again tonight. We pray for the encouragement to hold to what we know already, whether we're on the edge of the coming flood or whether we're in the period of waiting, whether we've already received some of what you have promised or we're waiting to see the fruit of what you've called us to. May you help us to continually, every day, choose you to live for your ways and your name. May you help us to live for the least. Give us energy and foresight to keep putting ourselves back on the altar. And Lord, equip us, because we know it's not just about you telling us to work harder, <laughs> but you also do equip us as you equip Noah. And we pray, Lord, that you'd send your Holy Spirit to refresh us, to give us your peace. And to help us remain faithful to you in joyful, joyful celebration of what you have promised will pass.